0: Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. This is Michael Williams, founder and president of Altius Financial.
1: And I'm Taylor Dennis, senior wealth design specialist and vice president of Altius Financial and our podcast co-host.
0: All right, all right. You came up with this one here, this episode. (laughs) So um, are you going to tell me that all these these rules of thumb that we've talked about, that the (laughs) wisdom of the ages is just for old people like me? Is that what you're trying to say?
1: (laughs) No, no, no. Well... I think today's discussion is really just to reflect on what kind of financial go-to rules we've really had. I mean, what has everyone been telling generations of investors and savers that, hey, this is what we should be doing? And then looking back and saying, "Okay, well, do any of these rules need to be adjusted? Do, Do the rules of thumb just continue on forever or are they applicable for all generations?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good idea because I don't, do you know where that whole phrase "rules of thumb" came, rule of thumb came from in the first place? Yeah, the origin of rule of thumb was you know guys using the length of a thumb in terms of measurement. It's it's kind of like a foot, right? What's a foot? Oh, like a, a ruler foot versus a meter, right? Yeah, sort of like just oh. a, a dist- you know, a, a length measurement. Uh, the rule of thumb is you know this is, and obviously not all thumbs are the same <laughs> length, so that's why I thought yeah. it was wise because. uh yeah, like rules of thumb don't always apply, you know, yeah. they're, they're just like not everyone has the same length of thumb, and that's, it doesn't necessarily apply.
1: Yeah.
0: This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of investment advice or financial planning. No client-advisor relationship is formed by our broadcasting this information or you're listening to it. The use of this information or any materials linked to in this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant as a substitute for professional financial advice. If you're needing specific advice for your situation, please reach out to your certified financial planner, or if you're interested in learning more about our firm, our people, or our philosophy, please reach out to us at our website, altiusfinancial.com, or you can reach us directly by email at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at altiusfinancial.com.
1: We have kind of a list here of different topics, and so I kind of just want to start with the first one that I have on this list. You've
0: got a long list here.
1: Yeah, we kind of have a collection of them, and I know there's plenty more out there, but I thought let's maybe focus on some things that are maybe applicable to our listeners or maybe things that are the most commonly shared. Yeah, And I think the first one's kind of the easiest, and it's just pay yourself first. And for our listeners who are going, well, what do you mean pay myself first? Maybe I work for an employer. I can't pay myself. Someone else pays me. That concept is really just you're putting away money for future you before you really do anything fun with it. You're not going to the movies. You go. The paycheck came in. Let's put away some savings before I start divvying up the rest of this.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that is you know that's the root of all financial planning, right? It's, yeah. it's starting to accumulate wealth. Try try to start to accumulate some security. So if you're earning, then right off the bat, you know, uh, going ahead. In fact. Sometimes we use this phrase, you know, it's not you who hired us. If we have a new client, we tell them, "You're not hiring us right now." And then they're like looking at us all confused, like, "What do you mean? I just, I just wrote you a check and said do some financial planning for me," and and we say, "No, it's who you're going to be ten years from now that's hiring us," and that means that person is the advocate for, well, save for me, you know, save for me long term because you're going to want to spend it but i'm going to be here 10 years from now and i want to make sure i have some spent some ability to spend and live well then too so it is still a good rule of thumb it's it's a yeah. it's a crucial rule of thumb and it is sort of the foundation in fact i go back to i don't know if you remember reading this but and again it's maybe an old school kind of way of looking at things but there's a, a fantastic book i think it's one of the best books ever on financial planning it's called the richest man of babylon yeah and i a lot of times will bring it up with young people but they should read it it's it's basically got it's sort of told in a, in a parable type of way, uh, of a person who accumulated great wealth and how they did it. And there's, you know, there's basically some, some rules to that story. And the first one, the first cure, and, and they, they talk about the, 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 the problem being, you know, not having enough wealth or not having a fat purse. So the cure is to how do you fatten up your purse? Well, you start to, you start, thy purse the fattening by beginning to save right off the bat. And that's what Taylor's saying is you know, you're paying yourself first. That means before you spend anything, whether it's, uh, you know, your basic necessities or any living it up, you're saying immediately I'm taking some off the top and, you know, our employer, our pl- employer systems oftentimes allow us to do that through savings plans before we even see it. And and that's a good rule of thumb.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, Having those contributions into like a 401k type account to say, hey, it's automatically pulling out X percent. It just makes it easier because you automatically will start re- re- readjusting your living expenses around that.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that automatization, you know, having things happen automatically is both good and bad. I mean, if you, if you just say, okay, I'm going to, especially if it's forced, if someone says we're going to take it from you by you know automatic and you don't get a choice in it, that's not good. But even then, if you if you get into rote habit of saying, okay, here's how I do it all, all the time automatically, that can serve you really well, and I would absolutely advocate it for this rule of paying yourself first. But eventually, you have to evaluate it and say, okay, you know, am I am I putting enough away still, or am, or can I adjust that? You know, but automatic rules definitely help. Um yeah. one rule of thumb that we sometimes use, and it's more of a math thing. It's called the rule of seventy-two. And all it is is just uh, a way to quickly do some calculations without, without having to get your calculator out. You divide 72 by the rate of return that you'll get. That'll give you the number of years to which in which your money will double. So the rule of 72 is always about doubling. So, for example, if you expect a rate of return of 12% on your money, now that's pretty pretty healthy rate of return. Yeah. But if you if you could have 12% annualized rate of growth. Well, then your money will double every six years if you just take seventy-two divided by the twelve percent. You know, seventy-two divided by the return equals six years, and then you've got you know, you've doubled your money. Um, and that's you know, as I said, it's just kind of a handy tool to be able to say uh, how often can I double my, my money. It, it also can be used in reverse order. At whatever your rate of return uh, will be, it will double in five years. So seventy-two divided by Five equals 14%. That's, you know, you can just reverse it as far as the math on that. And I think that's a handy tool to have. What's what's uh, some of the other rules of thumb that you have on the list, Taylor?
1: Yeah. So we have like limiting your student loan borrowing to your first year's expected annual salary. Yeah. And- so that
0: one's, I mean, that one's about, hey, we've talked about this in, in a prior episode, you know, the whole yeah. student debt crisis. We had Tara on there, uh, an expert on our, on uh, student loans and, and that whole issue. But I think sometimes people don't have enough of a rule about well, okay, how am I going to pay this back? Yeah, and how much should I borrow? What's a reasonable amount to borrow? And that's sort of a way, a guidance, a guidance to say, well, take a look at what you might be able to earn once you graduate. And so if you take that first, you know, if you take that for, first full year of salary that you think you might be able to get, uh, based upon the education you're going to receive and the degree and the major you're going to take. Well, that's about as much as you really should be borrowing in the first place.
1: Yeah. Well, so now going back to our title of our episode, our old rules just for old people. I mean, that sounds like great. Yeah. I'll only borrow I'll I'll do a 4-year degree on just whatever I made for my first year. Sure. Give it to me. I'll take it. But the challenge is how many jobs and professions out there can support the level of expense that we have across our education system because it does seem like I mean, you can say, okay, maybe I'm cutting costs. I'll do the first two years at maybe a community college to cut the costs and then just do my graduating years at the larger university so I can put that on my my resume and say, hey, look, I I did this larger school or I got this high Excel degree kind of thing. But how feasible really is that? Because I don't feel that's feasible at all.
0: Yeah, you're right. This might be a difference, uh, and you might call it a generational difference. I might call it an, a reality difference. Um, yeah. And th- this is part of the problem. It goes back to some of my comments with Tara. You know, people have have vastly overinflated the value of a college degree in many cases. Now, you know, if you get a if you get a a good business degree, if you get a good technical science degree, if if you get a teaching degree, most often you can you can get a first year salary where Okay, that's that's a reasonable relationship between what I'm gonna earn in that first year and now what can I afford to borrow? Now that usually means, you know, I'm gonna to have to have other sources of funding, maybe some savings, maybe some savings for my parents, maybe some earnings during college. I mean, one of the weird things about our culture now is that people think, okay, I graduated from high school and the automatic thing is, well, I wanna I wanna have the stature of going to college. I I want to be a college degree. I want a college graduate. And that means a certain kind of stature. And, but they think, really, I don't have to be productive for another four years. (laughs) You know, I can have, I can extend my childhood and it's like a vacation, like atmosphere. I mean, people act like going to college (laughs) should be, well, I have, you know, a wonderful gym membership and I have all these wonderful concerts and entertainment and I've got a bowling alley and I have (laughs) Then I have lots of intramural sports and I have, you know, a food court and I have uh, a swimming pool, like yeah. a resort town. I mean, people think of going to college more as a vacation and it's putting off the productivity that they would have. So my point is that college, now this is all, again, uh, I don't want to go off too much on this, but it's all a result of our subsidizing education and and inflating the cost of it and not having people really understand the value of it and what they can what they can do with an education. So I would hold to that's a good rule of thumb. Now you're right because we have had have this inflation there's a lot of kids who go well I can't do that. I'm I'm interested in X major and I know X major this kind of major doesn't earn that much so I I can't you know I I need to borrow more. Well, then maybe they should be saying no and saving some more if they want that kind of major. Um that's my but view. But
1: you, you so you're saying that there is a major where you can pay for a four-year degree with right upon your graduate with one year salary. Well, let's do the math.
0: I mean, uh, you know, let's say, let's say, you know, your average teacher in, in a metro area in Colorado is going to be able to make in the forties or fifties to start. Right. Okay. Um, so if they total borrow $40,000,
1: okay.
0: Like, you know, or $50,000. Yep. Then what is a degree, an education degree at say UNC, which is a good, you know, Teachers College, or, or one of the the public schools in you know the the uh, colleges in in the Colorado area that would offer a teaching degree. Well, it might be more than a total of fifty thousand in tuition and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, obviously, um, but it's not going to be so much more that a, a student couldn't work and pay for it along the way, or if they had some help from their parents, or maybe they delay college. Maybe they don't go for the first couple of years. They're working, learning, and uh, something about teaching. Maybe they're doing student teaching, sort of student teaching experience before they go to college and find out if they really want to do it. I'm, uh, what I'm saying is that we've got a system now that has lots of incentives that are screwed up. I mean, it, it, and, and you can inflate the number, you know, like obviously uh, a, uh, w- once a person completes their full education for becoming a physician or something like that, you know, they, they have the potential of earning hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, oh, obviously, obviously then that means You know, they can take out those kinds of loans, but uh, there has to be some kind of reality check on our system and people who are now adults going into college saying, well, okay, how much can I afford to borrow? Is this a reasonable amount? And that's the rule of thumb. You're right. It may be in today's world feel like it's not realistic and that might discourage more kids from going to college, but that would be another pricing mechanism that tells colleges that they're overpriced.
1: Yeah, which, and that's, that's possibly the the largest situation or largest conclusion here is that school's likely overpriced versus what you're getting for yeah, for it. I think but,
0: that's I think that's true. I think um, most people would kind of agree with that now.
1: But if it were me and I were making all these new rules of thumb, I would say rather than limit your student loan borrowing to your first year salary, I would say make sure you have clarity on what kind of loans you're taking, the amount of loans you're taking and a strategy to actually be able to pay those off. So it doesn't mean you have to be able to pay it off in one year or be able to say, that's covered by my first year salary, because depending on your type of education, maybe you don't have the flexibility to wait and go later. Maybe you're struggling because you can only work so many hours while doing a full education. Um, But have a strategy for, here's what I'm taking, and here's how I can actually afford to pay that off in the long run. That's and make sure you really have a advice. career in mind that says, hey, this career will be profitable to get me some kind of income to cover that kind of loan. That's
0: really good advice. Oh, well, that's a lot of words. And you know, the 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 rule of thumb is trying to shrink those words into a little pithy wisdom. But you're right. That's <laughs> that's much better way yeah. to put it is to say, you know, you gotta have a strategy for whether you can afford this or not. And and that kind of brings us to the next one. And maybe we'll have some uh some mild disagreements on this one too. Yeah. So the old rule of thumb, this is actually after you get out of college and yeah. and you're saying, well, maybe I'd like to buy a home. And there has been uh, for decades, uh, maybe even much longer than that, uh, people say, well, you got to have 20% down. You know, you have to have a da- down payment of 20% to get into your home. Um, that's been the rule of thumb for years. And I still think that's a pretty good rule. But again, <laughs> how realistic is that in today's world?
1: Yeah, so I think that's that's kind of the challenge. Is yes, obviously, twenty percent down is the gold standard. That's what you want to get. That's what you're working towards. Um, the question is, well, do I need the twenty percent down? You don't necessarily. You could still buy into a home without having the twenty percent down. I think that's maybe not clear to everyone.
0: Well, I mean, um, not everyone can do that, right? But not yeah, that's a good point. Could. Not
1: everyone, <laughs> not everyone can buy a home without. 20%. 20% down or not everyone can buy a home without X percent down, obviously you're going to need to have a certain amount of down payment. In most cases, it's the minimum is 3%, but for higher loans, which in current day's rates, you're going to have a higher loan, you're going to need probably closer to at least 10%. Um, so maybe you don't need the full 20, but maybe you have 10% saved and you're going, oh, well, I it's going to take me another 10 years to get the other 10 Maybe talk with a lender to say, "Hey, what what kind of deals can we work around this?" The challenge is the twenty percent rule is what defines if you have that mortgage intru- insurance. You know, <laughs> so if you're the, paying the, that extra cost to ensure the fact that, well, I don't have enough liquid right now.
0: Yeah, and you know that's that's another a whole other point is where did that twenty percent rule come from? Well, you're you're talking about you know that, that kind of goes back to, are you going to buy more? Are you going to have more a higher payment? If you have under twenty percent down, because you're not only yeah. paying your mortgage and in interest, but yeah. you're paying for some insurance. And who are you insuring?
1: Yourself. Well, you're
0: actually <laughs> not insuring yourself. You're insuring the bank. You're paying to say, well, I may not be credit worthy enough, and I might, you know, I might bail on this loan and leave the bank. Whoever lent me money to buy this house, yeah. holding the bag, and the and the bank is now saying, well, okay, we're going to rec- actually the system. I, the banks don't necessarily they're not the ones who created this. It's it's more of our legal structure and our regulatory structure that, that created the structure that says, yeah, you, you should be able to, you should be able to, uh, um, buy a house. Uh, but if you're, if you're taking, if the lender's taking that much risk by not having you put 20% into it, then they can charge or they should charge or have to charge this much more because there has to be an insurance policy to, to say, well, you weren't a good risk in the first place. And that's part of the yeah. problem is that 20% shows that you've accumulated some capital or have had a gift or inheritance. You've got some money and you have enough skin in the game, so to speak, that you're not going to just walk on the loan. Yeah. um, Even if the, you know, there's a change in your, your circumstances or, or if there's a change in the market conditions, because that's part of the problem is if somebody, somebody buys a house and then all of a sudden the house is worth a lot less and they don't have any real equity in it, what's to stop them from saying, Oh, I'm just going to abandon the home. And then the bank's going, well, you, know, you bought it at this price and now I own it at that price and I, I don't really I don't yeah. really want to do that.
1: Yeah, so that's where it's it's the bank and the lender trying to say, "Oh, we we want to take that risk off the table." Yep. So, do you need the 20% down payment to buy a home? The 20% is still the gold standard. You should still strive to have that 20%. Is it the end all be all will you never be able to get a home unless you have the 20%? Not necessarily. It really just depends on your situation. Yep on a similar line there's a rule that we we've heard about that's the you have to have 2 to 3 times so the the max you should spend on a home is 2 to 3 times your annual income yep so going back to kind of that teacher example where you said hey if you just graduated and you're a teacher maybe making 40 to 50,000 for easy math let's say 50 if i said 2 times the 50,000 salary the max i can get is a $100,000 house and Currently in Denver and definitely currently in Orange County, there's nowhere I could afford really that. There's
0: not a house out there for 100000 uh, I think that. Or is there's not a house out there that you'd want to live in for 100000
1: That's 000? another good question, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's part of the problem is that, you know, sometimes uh, people come out. Again, it's this this whole issue of you graduate from high school, you go to college, and you think now, well, I should be able to live like my parents do. Now, obviously, yeah. maybe your parents live in a, might live in a much more expensive house than $100,000. But there is partly the expectation that you're going to be able to live similar lifestyle. And you might find a $100,000 house that you just, you know, it's in a neighborhood you don't really want to live in, and it's not got all the space and the amenities that you'd like to have. But that's one part of it. And and the fact is that the builders are building, uh, they're not building really affordable housing. And there's there's a whole whole panoply of, uh, causes for that. And we won't get into those right now, but that's part of the challenge is that, you know, in reality, it's hard to find a house that you might like for two to three times what your annual income is. And, and this is where, you know, you'd probably go back to, well, you got to find a lender who, who would lend you more money.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, or you need to find a market where you can afford to live in. Right. So I think you could say, and I've known people who've said, oh no, I, I'm going to move out to Iowa. I can find a 200K house there and it does just fine. Yep. And it's maybe what would have been a five to 600,000 house in Denver. Yep, But that so also means
0: they might not be able to find the teaching job for 40 or 50. Maybe it's only 30, right?
1: That's true. So yep. you, you have to weigh, okay, what is the market going to provide to me? And yep. what are the trade-offs that I'm, that I'm facing? But I think for that rule of thumb, I mean, obviously the goal there is let's see what you can do to maximize your income. Yep in any given market but you might find that that's not necessarily um
0: and that means i mean just to, to put another little old guy comment in here i mean <laughs> maximizing your income means maximizing your value to someone to your employer yeah. to the marketplace maximizing your income means are you are you more valuable as an employee or as a producer in some way and and that's the key is if you're focused on that then you'll you'll solve lots of problems lots of financial problems get solved when you provide more value to the marketplace let's go to the next one uh yeah so like uh we've talked about you know graduating from college with student loans or having having a house and so forth but what about like once you're beginning to accumulate some some savings what how much should you put aside for reserves you know we we talk about this rule of thumb of you know keep three to six months that's the standard rule of thumb Three to six months of expenses. So, if you add up your monthly expenses and say it cost me, you know, five thousand dollars per month to live comfortably uh, based on my, you know, basic expenses, take that times three to six months. You know, fifteen to to thirty thousand is what I should have in the bank as reserves. Do you think that's still a good rule of thumb?
1: So, I think it's interesting because um, I like to look at our client base and think, okay, well, we've got people who have considerably more or considerably less sitting in cash and
0: then the three to six months yeah and well and
1: i think they a lot of times people come to us and say well how much do i need in cash like do i need this in my and i think there's not clarity on where should the money be so i think the first answer is you want it to be somewhere you can access it so you don't want three to six months of cash in your ira account because all of a sudden if you're not 59 and a half you can't really get it without having some penalties and taxes and it all of a sudden becomes a challenge to reach so you want to say have that money in somewhere that you can access it um i do think the three to six months is still a good parameter though i think what we've always heard is if you have two earners of income three months is will suffice if you have one earner of income six months is the best because you want to make sure you've got that time to support if someone were to lose a job and you need to replace that income. Um, but the other thing to consider if you're saying, oh, well, if all of a sudden you're financially comfortable and you've got different accounts and you've got, okay, maybe my trust account has some liquidity, my savings account has some liquidity, maybe look at, well, what is an urgent emergency that maybe might come up soon? So maybe I know that my furnace is nine years old and might break down in the next year maybe you might want the liquidity just for that furnace in the local savings account. Whereas the three to six months of savings could be in an investment account because you don't necessarily need it like tomorrow kind of thing. So having clarity of what account should hold that. But yeah, the three to six, I would say is still, um, still a good emergency fund amount.
0: Yeah. And it partly depends um, on how stable your income is. I mean, let's say yeah. that you have Let's say you make a lot of money, but you're in sales and it's variable and sometimes you, you know, really kill it. You, you've got a bunch of income coming in and then, you know, you have lean periods of the year. So that may mean you should have a larger cash reserves than that, you know, but if you have, you know, very steady paycheck and let's say you work for, you know, a very large or reliable employer or the government or something like that, where you've got, you're pretty sure that, you know, you're not going to lose your job and uh, it's like clockwork then maybe you can afford to have a little bit less and, and take a little bit more risk on that end. What about the whole issue of credit cards? Um, you know, the, the old guy says, you know, don't have any credit
1: cards. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, I think a lot of, um, a lot of social media finance gurus like to say, they like to mock the whole Dave Ramsey you can't have a credit card. Everything needs to be in a bucket and you shouldn't see a restaurant unless you've paid off everything. And, And I think that's the far extreme side of things. I think the reality is what is your relationship with money? Um, Are you the kind of person who knows that, hey, when the credit card bill comes at the end of the month, I've got the money available to pay that off? Or are you the kind of person that says, well, if the bank will lend me it, then let's see how many cards we can max. I I think having a good, sound relationship with money and your comfortability of saying, hey, I can use this as basically a debit account and pay it off monthly the same way I would as as a debit account um that's perfectly fine if you know based on who you are you just can't handle that because um you'll have that impulse to spend money that maybe you can't afford to pay back then maybe that's not a smart decision for you so yeah, credit cards I, I, aren't the evil. It's how you manage your money. Yeah, I
0: think I've heard you say that the credit card itself is not the evil. It's yeah, that's just a tool, right? It's just mm-hmm. another financial tool, and it's the behavior, how you use it, how you use the tools, what's important. Uh, maybe the rule of thumb should be. I mean, I do think the rule of thumb should be don't ever pay credit card interest. Yeah, which means that you know you're never accumulating debt, and that's that's the problem. Sometimes people don't realize how much they're accumulating, and, and they you know it it really can set you back. It's kind of like financial planning in reverse if you're paying double-digit interest rates on on short-term consumer debt. How about, how about yeah, the issue? Yeah, really,
1: really quick before we jump to the next one. I do think that's a helpful thing. I, I've i heard many times, it, it's so confusing because you set up a credit card account and no one tells you what you need to pay, um, but then you get that statement and it says, oh, your $25 payment is due, yeah. but there's $100 on the card. But you're going, oh well, it's twenty five dollar payment It's due, that's all I have to pay. Do not listen to that minimum payment amount. So yeah, that's the, that would that's be my rule of the, thumb. The, the drug
0: that the credit card companies get you hooked on, right? Yeah. The, do, minimum do payment the minimum payment
1: is not is not your payment. Your payment is the whole amount.
0: Yeah. That's the minimum <laughs> minimum for them not to come take your uh, car away or whatever. And for them yeah. to continue to extend your credit so you'll buy more and they can they can they can earn lots of interest instead of you. Accumulating financial security yourself. But what about the whole idea of buying cars? Um, You know, sort of a rule of thumb of saying don't buy cars that are new.
1: Yeah, I think I've heard the don't ever buy a new car because your car is going to depreciate the minute you roll off the block. And then I've heard only buy a new car, be the only owner of it, run it into the ground. Um, You know, that's going to be your car until you're buried in it kind of thing. I think it's, Take a look at three different things. So first, take a look at who's the purchaser. So are you the person that's purchasing this or is someone giving this to you? Um, Do you have the ability to purchase this vehicle? Is this something that you're going to break the bank to buy? Um, Second, what is the market for these secondhand vehicles? If, If you're listening to this podcast right now and it's 2022 and you're saying, we can't find a new car. We only have secondhand vehicles or we can't even find a secondhand vehicle they're only selling specific vehicles i mean look at what your current market is and then what's the difference for what you can pay for them so i know when i personally purchased my subaru crosstrek <laughs> um i was going okay i wanted to rely you sounded
0: on proud me. when you said that are you super you're a Subaru. You're a subaru fan. i'm a
1: subaru <laughs> <laughs> i just my friends all send me the jokes about oh well wh- What kind of stickers are you putting on the back of it? And (laughs) did your coexist sticker grow there? (laughs) All the funny jokes, and of course, I have an Australian Shepherd too, so I feel that those two things are just the. (laughs) I have some weird image that people have of me, but I personally purchased it because we had so many so many clients that we talked to about what's the reliability and the longevity of my vehicle, and so I said, well, I want a a a vehicle that's going to be reliable and sustain a long. Livelihood. um And then comparing, okay, well, should I buy this new or used? The used ones were, I think, one to $2,000 difference at that current market. And so I thought, well, for the slight difference, I will buy one new because I could afford to at the time. Now, if I said, oh, that $2,000 is really my limit, then the used one would have been the, the great option as well. Um, and then the, obviously the third option is who's the intended driver? So Maybe don't buy the brand new beamer for the 16 year old who just got just graduated, unless you know, hey, this is, I don't know, the smartest 16 year old. Or well, if you that, have the I flexibility right, with I mean, your that, income. That, that, or...
0: Again, it kind of boils back to values, what you can afford. Yeah. I mean, if you can afford to buy, you know, the brand new uh, beamer for the for someone, um, for your kid, then maybe that's okay. But, um, think about it long-term what's that what's the signal to them even if you can afford it and it's easy to give them that kind of gift you know you want to think about the the long-term impact of them having that kind of vehicle um there's a lot of rules of thumbs around car around car buying and one of them is that the car the value of the car shouldn't be more than 50 percent of the annual income of the driver or the owner and i think that's a good one um you yeah know, just an affordability thing how much you should really go about paying for a car um obviously it makes a difference if you're retired and don't have a you know you have accumulative assets um or if you're independently wealthy or something like that yeah how about uh, purchasing used versus new you mentioned that i i'm yeah. i am in the camp of the same as you i i actually yeah. do like buying new cars um I don't think it's a bad thing at all to buy a used car, but I'm that kind of person who, once I'm ready for a new car, I, just, I place the value on having that new car smell and, and being able to drive it off a lot and say, am you know, it's only got ten miles on it." Yeah. Um. That use that costs something. because you can oftentimes get a better bu- deal by buying something uh, used, but I definitely go buy the, I mean, I wouldn't even call it a a rule of thumb. I call it a law in my mind, really research the reliability. Now that's because I don't really want to work on my car. You know, (laughs) I don't want to have to deal with anything. I want it to be just getting me from point A to point B. So reliability is huge value for me. And therefore I do the research ahead of time and saying, you know, this is a really reliable car. And once I get it, I don't have to, I won't have to think about it much. And I will drive it into the ground. I'm the kind of person who will continue to drive in a car for hundreds of thousands of miles because it is that reliable and it's going to last that long and I don't have to worry about it yeah um other people need you know once it gets a few dings and uh you know it 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 starts showing its mileage and maybe it's got some repairs you don't want to pay for. other people like to have that new car smell sooner than I do, yeah um, and if it's a high value and they can afford it, no problem
1: well that's that's not even on our list, but I think that's something that's helpful to address there's many, many people, most financial advisors will say, never, ever, 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 ever lease a car. <laughs> and I can say, yeah, I
0: mean, I'm in that camp mostly.
1: Yeah, and I can say, in 99.9% situations, that's probably the case. You really shouldn't lease a car. You're if you're leasing it, you're paying for a car that one day you maybe will buy, probably overpaying for, or you're just continually paying for that car. Now the the .001% chance. I think it's harder
0: than that. I said mostly. You're you're yeah. kind of <laughs> making it sound like no one, hardly well, anyone, should ever lease. I mean, the thing is. This is a great thing about a market, right? Yeah. Leasing a vehicle used to be a really bad deal, like you said. People would get caught having to pay out of pocket at the end, even though they're letting the car go. Yeah. Leasing companies have been have paid attention to the marketplace and have gotten much more competitive in terms of them structuring the financing over the course of the the lifetime that you're going to be using the vehicle. So they are more competitive, but even then, it's still um, it's partly because those are usually fairly short term things. Yeah. You're going to lease a car for two or three or four years and then want to replace it again. And and that's, again, maybe reflective of my values where, you know, I don't really think I need a new car that frequently. But if you're, let's say you, you know, your lifestyle or your occupation does require having to have, you know, more of an updated image all the time, yeah. then maybe it's worthwhile. Maybe it's, but I interrupted, you were going to say something. No, else. Well,
1: that's kind of what I was going to say. As And I think it comes down to your values. If If you are, I'm a food person, so my budget goes to food. If you're a car person and your budget goes to cars and you know that that's a lifelong thing and you'll make sure that you can afford your savings outside of the car expenses, but you're okay because you want that new car smell every couple of years, um, then leasing might be the better option for that kind of individual versus buying, selling, buying, selling.
0: Yeah. One of the best rules of thumb I've heard regarding vehicle purchase is the twenty-four ten rule. And I think it's worth it. Um, you know, make sure that you're again, putting 20% down. So having some equity in the vehicle, not, you know, just financing the whole thing. Um, and most of the time that's a little bit more, obviously more affordable than a house. You put 20% down the loan length of the loan, the term of the loan or the tenure of the loan shouldn't be more than four years. I think it's not smart to really, uh, finance a vehicle for much longer than that. Yeah. And if you can keep the overall monthly kind of payments, uh, having that not be more than 10% of your income, I think that's also also a, r- r- a good rule. So 20, 20% down four years and 10% of your income in terms of the monthly payments, I think is a good way to finance a car.
1: Yeah. I think that sounds reasonable. Sounds so, reasonable. how
0: about the 10% rule? You know, you talked to right off the bat of, uh, paying yourself first. Well, how much should I pay myself first? And there's this rule about, you know, if you don't want to be a bag lady or be a poor person, you know, make sure you put 10% of your income away. And I think that's a good rule. Uh, that's worked for thousands of years. You know, people, if they will uh, take 10% right off the top of their gross income and put it away, they'll, they'll definitely be able to retire reasonably comfortably. Now, obviously it depends on when you start. And that means starting early. You know, if you, if you start saving 10%, you know, two years before you're ready to retire, that probably won't work. Yeah. Um, but if a person starts early at ten percent, um, then they'll they'll likely uh, be reasonably comfortable. Now the challenge is that it may not be quite enough. Uh, again, if they yeah. start later.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and then the other challenge is: is this ten percent just for retirement, or is this ten percent all the up for savings? Because I think um, one of the things we spoke about a little bit earlier today was the fact that in financial planning, you want to balance your life. Isn't just you working up to one day retiring. Your life is working up towards, okay, maybe one day buying a house, paying off college loans, having kids. You have a lot of other expenses along the way. And so you want to make sure maybe that 10% is just for retirement. And then you have additional for those expenses. that are going to come along the road as well.
0: Yeah. And this whole idea of sort of how much should I save and how much should I spend? I mean, it is a personal decision. And this is the point where uh, Taylor and I have worked out some numbers for for different levels of income. Obviously, if you're making you know twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year, maybe you're just starting your career and not making a lot of money, that's one thing. And if you're making three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, that's a different in terms of how much you might spend on different items. and yeah. and we have very you know we've put some time into actually looking at that. And giving people because it's amazing how people who might be making three hundred and fifty thousand or five hundred thousand dollars a year don't really know, okay, how much should I be really spending on this this kind of category? And we have yeah we have some rules and and some uh, good guidelines on that if someone wants to to ping us or or come in for a visit about that. But I also yeah. like the fifty thirty twenty rule in terms of budgeting and and that's basically saying your your basic fixed, you know uh, uh, important expenses that you've got to have every month should be about 50% of your income then 30% or so should be for discretionary luxury items, you know, vacations, things like that. And then you really should be if you can be putting 20% away. I mean, we, we use 10% as a minimum, but if a person's putting 20% of their income away, they're really going to accumulate some security quickly and and that's that's part of the the objective of financial planning is to to see if you can have more options, more freedom by having a little bit more financial security
1: yeah definitely so the the next one is looking at life insurance so um this is where the rule for this one is really eight to ten times your annual income
0: yeah and that's 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 a good i mean again that's it's something that's been you know like a lot of traditions or rules of thumb there's some sense in it from from years ago even if it's the length of a person's thumb you know, there's some rationality to it, uh, and that eight to ten times your income made sense in terms of, you know, if you if you have some dependents, if you have a spouse or kids who are depending upon your income, and 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 you you don't live, then they're going to need uh, a pretty big chunk of money to to adjust and to be able to live a, a reasonably comfortable lifestyle. Um, we are a lot more scientific about that, and that's partly the value of going through a financial pa- planning process is, is actually saying, okay, what what are your unique circumstances and do you need that kind of insurance? Obviously, a big part of it depends on whether you have accumulated some security because, I mean, part of the whole point of having life insurance is to get a big chunk of money yeah. in the un, unexpected early death of someone to provide for, well, if you've already accumulated some wealth and accumulated some security, or maybe you're independently wealthy now, then you perhaps don't need that kind of life insurance. So life insurance is a of unique case. Uh, Well, it's not unique. All of these rules of thumb should be taken with a little grain of salt. Um, but life insurance is one of those where we like to actually kind of nail it down and help people really hone in on what their need is. What about the, the, uh, um, the whole issue of these 401ks and 457 plans and employer sponsored plans? How much should someone be putting into their, uh, 401k? What's, what's the issue with that? the the rule of thumb that we go by
1: yeah so i can't even count how many people have had this discussion with me about well what does it mean to maximize my 401k am i maximizing my 401k and um, i think that really just breaks down into two different sections so the first section is are you maximizing your employer match amount so what is your employer putting in if you put in 3 are they putting in 3 um are they willing to put in 6 10 however much they're willing to put in that is maximizing the additional free money that they're gonna put into your retirement savings. And so the I would say the baseline rule of thumb for maxing for step one is everyone should be maxing whatever free money their employer is gonna give them.
0: No brainer, right?
1: Yeah, that's just a a no brainer at all. If you need to adjust your lifestyle, I think that's worth adjusting your lifestyle for to make sure you're affording that.
0: Yeah, I would underline that the four or five yeah. times. I mean, if you're getting free money, I mean part of the idea of investment is to say I want to get a return on my money. And if your employer is saying, this is automatic, we're going to give you free money. All you have to do is start saving for yourself. No brainer. You got to make sure you're at least getting the employer match, but but really a person should be going beyond that if you call it maximization. Right?
1: Yeah. And so what would in my and most financial advisors eyes really be maximizing your 401k or retirement plan is putting what the annual contribution amount is for that account. Um, I don't have that number in front of me. Actually, do somewhere. I think it's nineteen thousand this year. That sounds about right. It's gonna change. It changes every year. Um, but so it's it's quite a bit higher than whatever that one, two, three, four, five that your employer is likely going to match for you. Um, but that's really the best way to say, okay, I'm maximizing these pre or pre-tax or Roth type contributions into my retirement savings, and so that should be the the real big goal, um, whereas the first one should just be a rule of thumb go-to.
0: It's actually 20500 is the maximum contribution a person can make into their traditional 401k.
1: Okay. Thank you for confirming. Yep. Yeah, they increase it for inflation every year. So if you're listening to this in 2023, you maybe have a little bit more than that as well. And then also, it's just helpful to note, if you are over the age of 50, you do have what's called a catch-up contribution. And so that's an even even additional contributions you could be making as well. So should we jump into the subtract your age? Yeah, so
0: sometimes people wonder about how should I allocate my capital, my savings, my investing? And that's a big question. Um, The big category sometimes people think of is stocks and bonds. Okay, how much should I have in stocks or equities or, you know, higher risk assets, uh, even though bonds today have a substantial amount of risk too. How much should I have in, you know, the equity markets versus the fixed income markets or the bond markets? Um, And there's an old rule of thumb of saying, okay, take your age uh, and then subtract that from 100. So if you're 40, take 100 minus 40, and that gives you the amount that you should have in equities. So in that case, you'd have 60% in equities, 40% into bonds, and that's sort of the 60-40 classic mix that sometimes people talk about with regard to bonds versus stocks. 60 stocks, 40 bonds. If I get to age 70, then maybe I need to have really reduced the amount of equities I have. Maybe I'm now at 30% in equities, 70% in bonds. What do you think about that rule of thumb?
1: Yeah, I think... um I think that is an old rule of thumb. I'm going to say I, and that might be partially because of working in this industry and working for Altius, but I, I think there's a lot of different factors that should play into your specific investment allocation, including your liquidity needs, your personal risk tolerance, um, your longevity, and the time horizon that you have before you need these assets, along with what's going on in the current market. So, like Mike said, right now, bonds might be Quite a bit riskier, so maybe you would want even less than you would in a typical market or a different type of market. Yeah, um, I think that's important so. to
0: note. I mean, uh, we have a bond market that has been really strong for a lot of long time period, and that's partly because we've had what I would call abnormally low, or maybe uh, manipulated low. I mean, artificially low interest rates for such a long time period that that's helped bo- boost the returns and the sort of perceived risk yeah. profile of bonds. And now we have bonds having a lot more risk. So that one, I would debate some. I think that a person should look, you have to understand risk better. And that's that's what a CFP, that's what a certified financial planner, that's what Taylor and I do all the time is help people walk through, well, what does that mean? What does really risk mean? And what does it mean to have, you know, 60% of my assets in stock, so to speak? What? Yeah. How how bad could that get? Who, how good could that get? What does it mean for me? Uh, in a in the, a current environment, you know, with inflation uh, kind of rearing its ugly head and, and interest rates kind of starting to head head back up, I think that's one we that a person really does need to look at a lot closer.
1: Yeah, well, and, and talking about what is the change in interest rate due to the value of my bond at today's date versus tomorrow, and um, what does that do on the second secondary market? So, yeah. I think having those discussions about what's unique to your finances and your risk tolerance is going to be what determines really what kind of portfolio mix you need.
0: Yeah, and that's uh I mean, that's a good thought maybe to even end on the you know just yeah. looking at specifics that way. I think one more we should talk about, you know, since we were talking about retirement, we should touch on this whole 4% rule. Some people have heard of it, some people haven't, but there's a a rule of thumb that was created by a guy a guy in our industry decades ago, and he basically said, let's make this simple. You know, if I retire with X dollars, I can afford to take out four percent. That's the four percent rule, is what we call it. If I take out four percent of my principal each year and then adjust it for inflation, then I should be fine. I won't run out, run out of money if I, if I've got you know good diversification as far as stocks and bonds and so forth. Um, do you have any opinions on that four percent rule right now? I do.
1: Well. And so that rule is really just based on saying, okay, well, my portfolio will continue to grow by at least four percent each year to supplement that kind of distribution.
0: Potentially, or what, what it's what saying are, is, you know, I want to make sure I'm, I am concerned about inflation over time, and I don't want to reduce my principal so quickly. And and I've had people do much more than that. I've had people do five, six, seven percent, even as much as seven percent their principal each year. Part of it also depends on, you know, if you're really interested in leaving a legacy or leaving an inheritance or or having something left over, or if you're not as concerned about that, if you're saying, well, you know, as long as it'll last mostly my lifetime and I see some dwindling, you know, I don't want it to expire before I do, but (laughs) I I want it to last my lifetime, but I'm not really that concerned about leaving an, an inheritance. And it also depends on, you know, how reliable your other sources of income are. Let's say you have you know, uh, social security and you have a pension and you have, maybe you have some other business income or rental properties, then, you know, then that 4% rule is less important. Um, I did see where the guy who did admit that rule, the 4% rule, um, I can't remember his name, but he recently wrote an article saying, nah, we got to, we, we need to scrap it. Uh, people are actually spending too much at 4% and they really should be, uh, tightening their belts right now. And, and I think that's partly because of this inflationary environment we're yeah. seeing He's worried that people are spending too much and I think that's probably universal amongst financial advisors most of their clients are probably spending more than they ought to given the kind of potentially ugly environment we're we're facing right now.
1: Yeah, and so is that saying that okay, well what if there's a risk on the principal of yep. your investment and then the 4% all of a sudden becomes quite a bit more? yeah at that level yeah
0: well I, but it's unless long, you're I,
1: willing to drop your distributions to 4% or whatever you're well and that's what he is. that's what he said
0: you know each year you're taking a look at it and if you if we've seen drops in the marketplace in your portfolio which yeah. naturally is going to happen at some point then maybe you adjust your spending down and he and he's really pushing that saying you know maybe we should anticipate that even though the market hasn't really dropped or corrected or crashed that much uh it, it's it's dicey right now and it's better to do that preemptively. Is start adjusting your spending and taking a hard look at what the what the real lifestyle you've become accustomed to and whether you really need it that much. Yeah. But you know we could go on all day long, and it, <laughs> maybe those yeah. of you who have listened feel like we are. I mean, there are, there are so many uh, guidelines out there that that yeah they're supposed to represent wisdom. Um, we do call them rules of thumb and they're guidelines. Uh, but if you're really wanting to know more about any of these and how they apply to you. We invite you to, to uh, come in and talk to us. If you're a current client, we can definitely review the rules of thumb that you're using right now. If you're not a current client, we'd be happy to share our philosophy. We really appreciate you listening to our, our uh, podcast. Um, and we invite you to uh, continue sharing and liking.
1: Yeah, and all platforms are saved as Altius Financial. It's all written in one word. We are doing Terminology Tuesdays every Tuesday, so please tune in to see what next week's word is going to be. We're trying to make them all kind of interactive words that can be helpful and educational for all of our listeners. Um, If you are interested in getting any assistance with your financial planning, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcast episodes, please feel free to reach out to us. My email is taylor at altiusfinancial.com. Mike's is michael at altiusfinancial.com. Or feel free to check out our website. We have lots of great resources there, www.altiusfinancial.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us and have a wonderful weekend.
0: Thank you. Have a great weekend.